Well, good morning, good morning. I, uh, I want to pay you a particular welcome if this is your first time visiting with us. I'm Ryan. I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Spring Hill. And um, just a quick note about who we are and, and where you've come. We are a people and a church that our desire, our heart is that you would find home here. In fact, so much so that we've, we've named that as our, our vision, that we feel like God is calling us to be a people and a church to call home. Uh, we're one of two sites, one underneath the bridgers. Did anybody see those bridgers this morning with like the cascading uh, clouds coming down. Oh my, I have a picture. I'm, I'll put it up. Right, right above our legacy site. We're a two-site church. Our legacy site meets uh, early in the morning, bright and early. And then uh, here at our Bozeman site, it's my privilege to welcome you to worship. And uh, we are continuing on in this series called Rediscovering Church, as you see up on the screens. And Brian shared with us last week, he kicked the idea off. In fact, this was, uh, in many ways, Brian's uh, idea for this sermon series. We've kind of collaborated together on it. But the overarching question of this series that we're tackling is, is this. Who is God calling us to be? If you think about it, with so much change and turmoil in the, the atmosphere of our day, this is a vital question. If we've committed ourselves to the way of Christ, how does that now look different from the ways of this world? What does a community of faith look like in a day like ours? I was talking with a colleague a few weeks ago. He's a, a pastor of a downtown church in a fairly large town. And he said just 24 months ago, they had nearly 800 people on any given Sunday walking through the doors of their worship. Fast forward to last week, they combined all of the services down to one with just 300 in attendance in their pews. And as he was sharing his heart with me, I got to thinking like that kind of statistic, that forces a question for us. It must. What does that reveal about who we are? Where we're going? You know at Spring Hill, we've weathered it out much better. Praise God. I think it helps to be a smaller church where connections are easier made. But, but it's no secret that human patterns have changed, right? That there's a notable migration in the flock. There's a notable migration in our culture. Nationwide, I think our consumerism as a people and our, our shallow roots have been exposed now. So how do we discover church again? I'll give you just another example. You know, all over the headlines, we keep hearing about the great resignation, right? Y'all have heard about that? If you haven't heard about it, you've seen the signs. They're all over town. It says, we're hiring. You've seen those signs? The great resignation. There's not a business or a nonprofit that hasn't been affected by the ramifications of that wave. See, we live in a day and age where commitment and loyalty on all sides has disappeared. Recently, a, a friend of mine brought somebody out for an interview, flew them out to his small business for an interview, wine and dined them all weekend long. Everything seemed great. They flew back home. He was ready to offer him a job. And I kid you not, they ghosted him. Not even a phone call back. What does Christian community look like in that kind of a context? I could keep going down rabbit trails all morning, but the point of this series is this. We need to recalibrate and ask the foundational questions again. The book of Ecclesiastes reminds us there's nothing new under the sun. So with God's word open over the next few weeks, we're going to revisit this question. What is church? And who are we called as God's people to be? So last week, if you missed it, let me just catch up. Brian rolled out the first layer of this where he, he so poignantly reminded us of this, this calling for us to be a humble people, 
right, in a time of cancel culture and, and gotcha politics, Brian remind us that before the Lord, we all stand the same, wretched saints in need of God's grace. And we left with this prayer that, I don't know about you, but it's been in my mind all week long of have mercy on me, the sinner. This morning, I wanna pick up where Brian left off. Layer one, we're a humble people, and, and here's layer two. I thought we would look at what it means to be a people of prayer. Because if anything should look different between us and the world, it's that, right? Our, our prayer time with the Lord. And to do that, we're gonna turn to this letter of Paul's that he had written to the church in Philippi. This was, this was Paul's first church plant. Uh, in Eastern Europe. And um, at the very beginning of this letter, we, we find one of the very few places in scripture where we get to peek inside of, of a man's prayer life in the midst of Christian community. And let me just set this up. Um, Paul writes these words, and as he does so, things are not great in his life. In fact, you could say Paul's life was in shambles. It was in crisis. Paul is in prison. He's literally been shackled for his faith. So the church sends a friend, Epaphroditus, to come and, and say hello. And Paul now pins this jailhouse letter to go back to his church. And of all the ways that Paul could start, he starts this letter out with a prayer. So let's look at this together. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. 1 through 11. Let's, let's hear now God's word. Paul and Timothy... Servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine, for you are making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. So just two weeks ago, the words turkey shortage were trending on Google. Anybody catch that? Did you see that? I read that and I thought, oh great, here we go again. Like throw out the teepee, that was so yesteryear. Now it's turkeys. You got 25 days to go find your Toms. If you can't find one in the grocery store, don't worry, I was over at Livingston. I saw an entire flock just out in the fields. We'll go find one. But I feel like this, this prayer of Paul's is perfect for us to kick off November. And I say that because this is in every sense of the word a thanksgiving prayer. In fact, it's the opening line. Look at this with me in verse three. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. Think about your Thanksgiving traditions with me for a minute. I know it's early. We haven't gotten our candy out yet. But just play along. As you lay out the turkey and on the table with all the goods and the, the friends and family are gathered around, what does your Thanksgiving Day prayer look like? In my family, I, I feel like we start with a prayer for those who are present, right? We, we start by giving thanks for those in the room who are gathered around who made it. Thanks for their safe travels and what they mean to us. 
I would guess that's typical. Is that kind of how yours starts? And then it moves, the prayer often moves the, this focus of those who can't be with us, or maybe we look over the last year to those who have gone before us, and, and now we turn that into thanks. And then in my house, it morphs to us looking back on God's, God's provision, and it can get quite lengthy, and depending on who's in the room, there might even be some tears involved, and before you know it, the stuffing and the turkey's gone cold, and I'm like, can we wrap this up? But take a minute for me, uh, with me, and I want us to imagine that table, but instead of thinking about your family, I want you to think about your church family. And rather than a one-time prayer, here's my challenge this morning. What if for the next 25 days, we intentionally gave thanks for this community we have in Christ? What might that look like? You know, of all the things I'm gonna show you in this passage, this is what I want us to walk away with this morning. Paul cultivates a habit in his life of giving thanks for the bride of Christ. Paul captivates a, a, a habit in his life. He cultivates a habit in his life of giving thanks for the church of Christ. In fact, look at this right out the gate. Look at this in verse four. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer. Every time that this church of, of Philippi comes to Paul's mind, he can't help but find himself in a moment of gratitude for the community that he has. And so my proposal this year is what if we did the same? What if for the next 25 days we thought uh, of our church and every time we did, we stopped to give thanks? Now this is probably the easiest challenge you might think that you've ever had from this pulpit. Like how hard can that be, right? Who is God calling us to be? God is calling us to be a praying people who give thanks for their community, for one another. That's easy. It's fairly straightforward. In fact, we could wrap things up right here. You've heard the sermon. This is it. You've got the topic. Don't go to sleep on me. But you've got it. But let me just dig in for a minute. Is it that simple to give thanks for your church? You know, if you really stop to consider that Thanksgiving spread with everyone gathered around, as you think about your immediate family or your extended family or most particularly your church family, tell me this, could you not find one person at that table who you'd maybe not want to give thanks for? Johnny Carson, he called this out years ago. He said, Thanksgiving is an emotional holiday. He said, people gather from thousands of miles to be with the people they only see once a year and then they quickly discover that once a year is way too often. <laughs> and I think the longer that we do life together, the, the more forgiveness is required around the table. You might remember my friend Marvin growing up. I've shared a little bit of his story before. Uh, Marvin was a phenomenally gifted singer. He was a tenor. And he had literally walked off the street and into church one day. And Marvin, could, he could belt a hymn like no one I had ever met before. The only problem was Marvin didn't look the part. Marvin wasn't in the choir. He, he wasn't a regular at church. He was essentially homeless. And out of nowhere, one day Marvin walked in the church. He sat down in the very front row, worn down suit and white sneakers, a gray beard. In fact, everybody watched Home Alone. You know the church guy with the shovel? That was Marvin, except for a little bit more joyful. Marvin, he would have blended in except for that he had made it his mission to outsing the organ. <laughs> Didn't matter how long the organist held the note, Marvin would hold his louder and sing much longer. 
And you have to understand, this church that I belong to was massive, wooden pews, balcony. His voice would just reverberate. And so from the moment that Marvin joined our community, he became this like comic relief and entertainment for the church. How great thou art never sounded so good. You could see the laughter in the midst of the people. And I remember at the cookie hour, I was about eight years old, and I noticed everybody thought this man was not self-aware, but I noticed Marvin felt it. As he munched on his cookie, you could see people snickering around him. Marvin may have been in the room with a hundred other people, but he was alone. And I share that story because I think it's a stark reminder of how quickly we can fall short as God's people. You know, for many of us, for one reason or another, in the last few years, we, some of us have gotten a taste of what it is to be Marvin. You know, we thought that we gathered around with people that looked like us and talked like us and thought like us. We had everything in common. But then inadvertently, we found ourselves suddenly the outsider, the one whom someone disagrees and if we're honest, all of us, whether in our own families or in our church family, we can look over our children. We can all find at least one brother or sister who in our woundedness, we would rather not give thanks. If you're like me, you're far more conditioned to give thanks for those you like and criticize those you don't. But as you read through this lesson, there's a definite pattern, I think, worth us noticing for our, our prayer life together. I mean, did you notice who it was that Paul gave thanks for? It's all over this chapter. Look at this with me. Chapter one, verse one. Look at how Paul begins this letter. To all the saints in Christ Jesus in Philippi. Chapter one, verse four. I thank my God for you all making my prayer with joy. One, verse seven. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me in grace. One verse eight, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I wonder how that would have gone if Paul would have said, I thank my God for some of you. The rest, well, don't worry about keep on reading. He hits this theme over and over again in his prayer. It's like a metronome. I thank my God for all of you. Every single saint accounted for in this prayer. But notice this with me, and let's be real, right? Someone had to have rubbed Paul the wrong way. If you read on in this letter, you read of divisions and fights and quarrels over doctrine in the church. And yet this, this lesson isn't just about who Paul prayed for, it's also about how often he prayed for them. Look at this again in verse four. He said, I give thanks always in every prayer I make. Let me just summarize, because I don't want to mess this up. I think this is really important. This is vital. In Paul's prayer time, we somehow get a picture that this prayer of thanksgiving is for every single person in the church, every single time. I mean, I don't know about you, but that blows my mind, right? Like, if that's the pattern, maybe this thanksgiving assignment isn't quite as simple as we thought it was. You know, I'm so much better at giving thanks for people who love me and agree with me and, and who are for me. We're supposed to give thanks for all the saints. Psalm 133, verse one, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Second Corinthians 13, 11, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace. 
So I kid you not, right here, right here in this place during my sermon prep, um, I felt what I would call like a God nudge, like a God, this tap on my shoulder. I was in the basement of Legacy working on this sermon, and I felt like God was like, Ryan, maybe before you preach it, you should try it. You know, practice what you preach. I thought, okay, fine. So in the basement of Legacy, um, I close my laptop, I bow my head, and I begin to pray. And here's what happened. Two things happened. First, I lost all sense of time. I lost all sense of time, right? Because if you begin giving thanks for all the saints in your church, that's nearly 400 of us, folks. Fill it up for the next 25 days we could. It's like a thread of yarn, right? It just keeps coming as you pull on it. So as I tried to follow Paul's example, here's the second thing I found out. I found out that you cannot pray for your brother or sister in Christ with anger or bitterness or woundedness or a grudge without the Holy Spirit immediately beginning to transform your heart towards them. You ever notice that? Try it, try it today. Maybe right like during worship when Becca's playing here in a minute, try it. Try to pray for somebody you're angry at and see how long it lasts. See, here's what happens. I'm, I'm convinced it, it, it won't. Because as you give thanks, as you pray with thanksgiving, God begins showing you what it is you should be thankful for. See, things in Philippi were, were a total train wreck. Later in chapter four of this letter, we find that there's two leaders in the church, Yodi and Syntyche, and they're at it again. They're fighting again. There's a disagreement in the flock. Persecution is taking place from the outside. Emotions are raw. Stakes are high. And Paul says, no, no, listen, let's not get caught up. This is my prayer. I thank God every time I remember every one of you. Paul cultivates a habit of giving thanks for his church. But here's where things go off the rails. He doesn't just give thanks. Look at this again in verse four. We're picking it apart a lot this morning. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you, every prayer of mine, making my prayer with joy. Now, how in the world, now this almost seems impossible. How is Paul not only thankful, but now he's also joyful? This is over the top now. You ever met that eternal optimist in your life? Everybody's got one, right? Like the car breaks down on the side of the road. It's a snowstorm. It's 11 o'clock at night. Your phone has no signal. And they're like, this is awesome. We get to spend more quality time together. Remember Paul's circumstances, right? It's one thing to be thankful. In fact, insider secret, as you read on in the letter, you, you learn that Paul had just received a gift from this church. So give thanks, Paul, good on you. But Paul's in prison. His circumstances are grim. He's facing death and he's praying with joy. How is that? 14 times in this letter, we read that word from Paul. 14 times he's talking over and over again about rejoicing. You know, if I was in Paul's shoes, I think my word back to the church would maybe be something a bit more PG-13. How does a guy dig deep enough to pray with that kind of thanksgiving and joy? How do you do that? Here's what I love about God's word. A lot of times, right as you're answering, asking the question, God brings you an answer. You know why Paul was able to rejoice with his prayer life? Look at this in verse five. Here's your answer. I can rejoice, he said, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. We might not have anything in common. I, I may be in jail writing to you from hundreds of miles away, but here's where I rejoice. I rejoice because my life and your life are wrapped up in the passion and the pursuit of Jesus Christ. 
People have asked me over the last year to explain the elders' vision. You know, what do we mean when we say we're a church to call home? What do we mean when we say we're about relationships flourishing and generations connect and neighbors being loved? There it is. If you want to know how to have a prayer life that is overcome with gratitude and joy, there's your answer. Root yourself with those who partake in the same gospel as you. And I'm convinced of this. You won't find that joy in podcasts. You won't find that joy by live stream. You won't find it in the mountains or in recreation. You can't do community and encouragement and accountability from your couch. You will only find that kind of thankfulness and joy in the partnership and community of others in Christ. Let me just back that up with some nerdiness because I know that's a bold statement. That word partnership that Paul uses in the Greek, the word is koinonia. Everybody heard that word before, koinonia? It's one of the many Greek words that we would be more familiar with. Koinonia was this, this phrase that was meant to uh, relate to tight-knit family relationships. Think like parent-child, mother-father, husband-wife. Paul says, because of the partnership, because of the koinonia that we have in Christ, I can give thanks. See, we live in this time where I, I think we become so conditioned to define ourselves by what we are against, by who we are not. And yet Paul's letter reminds us what's important, what's most important for the Christian is that we unite ourselves in what we are for. And so Paul sees this vision, right? Not as the church that it is now, but of a church that is being sanctified towards glory. That even if things are not perfect and people are wounded and there is fighting and he is in jail, he praises God. Look at this in verse six, because he knows what's coming. He says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. God is far from finished. He goes on in verse nine, and this is my prayer, that your love would abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you could approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless on that day. Just consider the 12 disciples with me for a second. This comes from a guy named Colin Hansen. You think about this, Jesus calls Peter and Andrew, right? He sees them fishing and he says, come and follow me. I know you love fishing, now we're gonna fish for people. Two fishermen in his flock. Then he goes to James and John and they too are sitting in the boats, mending their nets with their father. And he says, come on boys, let's go. Four fishermen in the flock. Now this is working out great. I got four fishermen in the flock in a Jewish culture. We're all gonna be at this homogenous group. This will work out great. And then he walks by the tax collector's booth. The most hated individual in all of society. Everybody can agree they hate the tax collector. And he says to Matthew, come on, you join too. Now time out. Andrew, Peter, James, and John are now to be in koinonia with the abomination? You want us to be partners in the gospel? The Pharisees, even the Pharisees wanted to know, who is this man, Jesus, who eats with sinners and tax collectors? See, it's crazy to me how many friends we can find in, in Christian fellowship where if you really thought about it, it might be that the only thing you have in common together is Christ. That maybe even we in this room, we don't see eye to eye on things like politics. Maybe in this very room, we, we have someone who rubs us the wrong way. Maybe it's me. But the gospel changes all of that. 
right? The gospel changes all of that. Christ overcomes all of that. Paul says, I give thanks. Why? Because of our fellowship in the gospel from the day I met you until now. Such that every time the church pops into Paul's head, he's overcome with gratitude and thanksgiving and prayer for the ones he loves. Let me just close with this. You know, C.S. Lewis gives us a really incredible image for this reality. He says, you ever realize that the brother or sister that you're putting up with, the, the one that you're praying for, the one in your church or in your family who you might see as like the dullest, lamest, maybe even most frustrating person in your life. He said, do you ever think about how one day by Christ, they will be so glorious in their perfected state that you will find yourself falling in front of them? Who are we called to be as a church? A humble people, a prayerful people, a grateful people. And I think as, as we get that picture of Thanksgiving in our mind of us gathered around the, the table of those we love and love to put up with, here's my challenge. For the next 25 days, try it. Take just a few minutes every day and stop and think about those in your life who you wanna give thanks for, and you'd rather not give thanks for. And see if God won't cultivate a habit of gratitude in your life as he did in Paul's. Let me pray for us. God, we belong to this entitled culture, Lord. And we can easily become a people of complaint, a people of, of, of grumbling or, or frustration, Lord. And we, we have all collectively as your people been through a lot. And yet as we step into this, this season of, of thanksgiving, Lord, we, we pray would you cultivate in us that habit of gratitude in our lives. Lord, would it start in this place that a, a world that is divided along fault lines that has defined itself by what it's against, that has aimed arrows at, at the other, Lord, that they would see something different in a community that is passionate around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we praise you that even in the moments where we grit our teeth and wonder what in the world you've done by putting us together, God, that you give us the ability to say thank you for our common hope and our common pursuit of the gospel of Jesus Christ from the first day we met until now. And so Lord, until you come again, would you, would you keep us mindful that, that you who began a good work in us will continue that work to completion, Lord? Would you keep us mindful of that hopeful picture that we would continue to spur one another's on as iron sharpens iron? such that we would be pure and blameless and righteous and holy before the throne in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.